loved going up there and just uh, the scene and the, the beauty of nature. And it's, it's created to have, you know, maybe a large family be there, but not more than that. But over time, your family has rented it out as a VRBO, right? So that people can go up and enjoy it themselves. And you decide that one weekend you're going to go up there, and even though you know that there's a, a party that's rented it out. There's, a, there's an apartment on the back end. It's big enough to have that. So you go up there, and you arrive at this, you know, this beautiful place. And as you arrive, you discover there are like 20 cars parked on the driveway. And in fact, some of them are like parked in the flower bed. Some of them actually almost in the bush area. You're going, this is not what I expected. And as you walk up, you notice that the dining room table and the chairs are out on the front lawn. And it looks like they've been there for a week or so. You start walking up the steps. And to the left, there's always been this really nice picnic table that, you know, your family have enjoyed meals together. And you discover that people have been carving their initials in this thing. The door is wide open. And you walk in and you see people that are sitting on, are standing on the couches around, right? And they've cleared out the main hardwood floor area because there's a three-on-three hockey game going on in the middle of your living room. And they're using real hockey pucks because you can see the dents in the wall. And you have had enough. We're done! Stop it! Get out of here! And someone says, well, who are you? My parents own this place. And this is a VRBO intended for a single family vacation. You've turned it into a frat house. Get out! Now! This is not being used how it was intended. Before I call the police and have you removed for trespassing. We're here in our series through Come and See. And we've seen Jesus the Messiah, the true Son of God. He has revealed Himself, and as we're going to see, He visits the temple. The place where the presence of His Father is to dwell. But as we see, other things have crept in. And Jesus comes to cleanse His Father's temple. And ultimately, pour forth Pour, point forward to a greater reality in worship that his own disciples who are with him will only realize in time. But we also have to ask the question, in our own experience of worship, what are we allowing to creep in as well? So as God reveals his word to us, let's be open to what he wants to do. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dig in, okay? Lord, again, we're grateful that you reveal the truth of who you are and who we are. And we're grateful, Lord, that uh, it is full of mercy and truth. So help us to receive what you have for us today, to respond accordingly, and help us to grow as people who are fully devoted followers of the living God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray these things. Amen. Last week we were seeing that Jesus had been gathering 
disciples to himself, but had really not done anything up to that point to make a public splash. But then he and his disciples and his family were invited to a wedding up in a town called Cana. And his mother was helping work the wedding, so to speak, and she notices they run out of wine. And she comes to him and says, can you do something about this? And Jesus at first is reluctant because he knows that once he does something, the time clock starts ticking as far as his mission. But he obliges and turns the water into wine. And he reveals himself as the true bridegroom, the one who is pursuing his people to redeem them. And he will start showing even more who he is as the true Son of God. But now we're seeing that he's heading towards this house of worship. So, verses 12 and 13 say that Jesus returns to Capernaum, where he's kind of set up his home base with his disciples and even his family. And we'll see that even his family doesn't necessarily believe in him. We'll see that in chapter 7. But now it's the season of the Passover. And every Jewish male is required to be there for this feast if they can make it. And so he heads down there as the true son, and he, what he finds he's not pleased with. So number one, man-centered worship is cleansed by the son. Verse 14, in the temple of the courts he found the people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and other sitting, other sitting at exchange tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And the disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for my house will consume me. So let's just state the obvious here, okay? What Jesus does is shocking. What Jesus does is shocking. If Pastor Nathan came in here and started turning over these things, you go, oh, snap, there's something wrong with him. When we think of Jesus, we think about him teaching about turning the other cheek, about going the extra mile, about forgiving your enemies and praying for them. But this is not what's happening here. Jesus takes some cords, weaves them together, and makes a whip. And oh snap, literally, it goes on bossy cow's rump roast. And oh snap, it goes on fluffy the sheep's leg of lamb. Because he's driving them out. And he confronts the money changers, turns them over. And you're going, whoa, Jesus, this is over the top. This is not Minnesota nice, right? Why does Jesus feel justified in doing what he's doing you see this temple area was set aside for worship so here's the main temple area but there's a court of the gentiles here and it's also on this side this is where the gentiles could come and worship seek the living god and there's a wall here on this side, and there's one on the other side. And they were not allowed to go beyond that. And there was printing saying, any Gentile that goes beyond this would be killed. Because only 
the people of Israel could come in. The court of the women here, and the men could go here, but only the priests could go in the main temple area. So, again, there's some exclusion here, but this is a place of worship. A holy place set aside exclusively for this. But the authorities, the the Levites, the priests, have said, you know, I don't think it'd be such a big deal if we, you know, set up an area where we could sell sheep and cattle and pigeons and exchange money so that, you know, the people can... Because sacrifice was part of the sacrificial system in, in the temple. And it was much easier to bring a bag of money and buy a sheep there than it was to transport Fluffy across, you know, all of Israel and that... In, that uh, animal might get injured, and if that's so, it's impure, and then they can't sacrifice it. So it was easier to bring the money into the temple. But nevertheless, this is an area of worship for the Gentiles, and they're being <laughs> excluded, so to speak. Yes, yes, they were Gentiles. But what right did the Levites and the priests say to It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about this distraction. So this place is supposed to be a solemn place of prayer, and you've got bleeding of sheep. You've got mooing of cows. You've got cooing of doves. The, chinking, the uh, clink of, of change being exchanged. Can you imagine if we decided that we would keep animals in this room as we worshipped, right? The sheep back in the corner here, the cattle over here. Holy, holy, moo. Not only ju- just the smell, the sounds, and where you step. This is an area that's exclusively set aside for worship. Not a market. There's nothing wrong with a market. But it's not a place of worship. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across as the true son God is not pleased. Here's what I also want to note for those of you who are more Bible studious, or Bereans, if you will. In the Gospel of John, this cleansing of the temple, it takes place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a cleansing takes place towards when Jesus is going to the cross. So does John have it wrong? Is he confused about the details? Is there a conflict here? I don't know if this uh, concerns you or not, but here's what I want to tell you and what what I've come to the conclusion. There are actually two cleansings in Jesus' ministry. The first being here at the start of his ministry, as he declares himself as the true Son of God, and then later on as he goes to the cross still as the true Son of God, but as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's where I believe this, okay? Number one, the language between the two... Well, first of all, the language in John is is chronological. He's not saying, and one day Jesus came into the temple. It's like, no, directly after Cana, directly after he was in Capernaum, there's there's a sense of chronology here. It's at the start of Jesus' ministry. Number two... The language is different. If you look at Mark chapter 11, verse 17, this is how Jesus responds in the second cleansing. It is written 
My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. So the issue here is one of prayer and also graft and greed. Whereas in this, in this account, in John, he says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's wrong use of a place of worship. Both were an offense. But Jesus does the same thing twice. And here's, here's the point. Jesus repeats himself for effect. Again, he's the true son of God at the beginning of his ministry, and he's the true son of God at the end of his ministry. Think about this. When Jesus calls Simon Peter to follow him in Luke chapter 4, what does he see? What does he do? He says, cast your nets over the side. Okay, Lord, if you say so. And all of a sudden, his nets, after fishing all night, are filled with a whole abundance of fish. Okay? Then in John chapter 21, after Peter has denied Jesus, after Jesus has been risen from the dead, and Peter's a little bit sheepish about what he did, he goes fishing. And Jesus on the shore calls out to him after he's been fishing all night, gets nothing again. He says, hey, cast your, your nets on the other side. Okay. And they do, and all of a sudden, that net is full of fish, just like the first time. Jesus is revealing himself even in that miracle. Just as Jesus fed the 5,000, then he fed the 4,000. Jesus does things to say, this is who I am. So this is what's going on here. Jesus repeats himself. Again, he's acting out of his identity as a true son of God at the start of his ministry. Because things have crept into this worship area that should not be there. So a matter of practical theology here and practical application. What are the things that we bring into worship that shouldn't be here? Not many of us bring in cattle. We've brought in a sheep a couple times to illustrate something, but it's not a regular member of our worship experience. It usually has to do with our hearts. A consumer mentality. Boy, I hope they talk about what I want to talk about today. I hope they address my needs. I hope they sing the songs I want to hear today. Maybe it's nursing a grudge or unforgiveness against somebody. In worshiping a God who is a God of all reconciliation, we're not extending the grace that has been extended to us. Maybe we're just checking out our mind is someplace else. We're thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch today. Or maybe we're just downright distracted. Maybe you're texting during the service. Something came to mind or some notifications came. Are you removing those distractions? Or maybe it's just an unsurrendered heart. Who are you, pastor, to tell me what to do? I'm nobody. But the Word of God has something to say to your heart. And are you surrendering to that? Or maybe you have an attitude of, God owes me for showing up and obeying Him. As we talked about 
the beginning of, of January as we went through a series on worship. Worship is not about us. It's about the living God. And it starts with giving glory to Him and experiencing His glory, or His dogza, or doxology. It's about declaring our dependence upon Him. It's about desire to seek Him, to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to dwell in His presence. Worship is not about us. But that's what's happened here in the temple, a place where God is to be worshipped. And Jesus' actions, they cause quite a stir. And the Levites who were in charge had some questions. Verse 18, Then the Jews responded to him, What sign do you show to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to, to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Number two, man-centered worship will be replaced by the Son. Hear that again. Man-centered worship will be replaced by the Son. What's interesting is these people, they want a sign. They want a supernatural miracle to prove that Jesus has the authority to do what he did, to say what he said. You know what's interesting, though? They do not have the self reflection or self-awareness to go, huh, maybe he has a point. Maybe we have allowed this to stray in the wrong direction. And they don't even recall what the prophets have said earlier. Things like Zechariah, and this is the ESV version of this, chapter 14, verse 21. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be, shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice to them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Literally, it, it says there shall be no Canaanite, but that was a colloquialism for a person who was trading goods. So there won't be somebody doing that when the day of the Lord and all of his kingdom comes. Or Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 and verse 3 in the same chapter. Behold, I will send my messenger, which was John the Baptist, and he will pre prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 3, it says, And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Jesus, as the Messiah, is bringing his refining rebuke and presence to the sons of Levi, who should be looking after true worship. But they really don't want to hear that. They really don't want to hear what he has to say. They want a sign. Let me ask you, do you do that with God sometimes when you're reading his word? 
You read something, and you go, that's, uh, that's challenging. I'm not sure I can apply that. God, I'd sure like a sign to show you that you're in this. No, it's God's Word. Why are we, why are we asking Him to jump through our hoops to make Him pl- prove Himself faithful to His Word? The Levites didn't believe. Do we? But Jesus does respond. He says in verse 19, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus' response to his inquisitors (laughs) makes them incredulous. They don't understand because they don't know who they're standing before, and they don't understand because they don't know what he was saying. Verse 20, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. This is why I say this man-centered worship will be replaced by the sun. The temple in Jerusalem, that was a place where God's presence was to dwell on earth. But Jesus, the Messiah, is God in the flesh who came and dwelt among us. The temple in Jerusalem will be ultimately destroyed in 70 A.D. by Rome. Jesus, the Messiah, yes, he will die on the cross, but he will rise from the dead. The temple in Jerusalem, it had become man-centered. It focused on the old covenant. And after it was destroyed, God's dwelling departed. But Jesus, the Messiah, he ushered in a new covenant, bought by his death and his resurrection, and it's no longer focused on a location. And we can read about that in chapter 4, as Jesus meets the woman at the well, that the, the worshipers God is looking for will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that the temple of the Lord is not a location, but it is indeed the believers, as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, as 1 Corinthians 6.19 talks about. God's dwelling is not a building. God doesn't come and hang out at our building here. That doesn't mean he's not omnipresent, but his presence is in the people. You are the church, not this building. You are the church, not this building. He dwells within his people. And that is why man-centered worship was replaced by the sun. Last of all, sun-centered worship will be be called by his men. Verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, eh, eh, time out. Spoiler alert. What? Chapter 2? We already know that he's going to die? We already know that he's going to be raised from the dead? After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. See, we have to realize in real time, even, even as Jesus was doing these things and saying these things, his disciples did not actually get it even any more than the people that opposed him. They were still a little bit confused. They were still not understanding it all. And it's really not until they see it through the lens of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead that these things come into view and they understand it as it's illumined by the Holy Spirit. And it starts to make sense. 
So when Jesus says in verse, verse 19 that destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, they're kind of going, <laughs> what does he mean? They weren't sure until after Jesus had died and had risen from the dead three days later. It all makes sense now. And in retrospect, even John and his disciples, as they think about this incident, now they make the connection between Psalm 69.9. Verse 17 says, And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Oh, that's what Jesus was doing as he quoted the words, of, as he lived out the words of David. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me hope, actually. Because there's sometimes I read God's Word and I kind of go, huh, I'm not sure I get all of that. I'm not sure I understand all that. And I'm not sure I understand how God's old covenant feeds into the new covenant. But I will tell you, if you will commit yourself to being in God's Word, to reading it, to meditating it, and studying it even, all of a sudden those things start to make more and more sense and you see how God has connected the dots all along the way about His true Son. And you believe Him even more. Second of all, as John writes this, it gives me confidence And when we read the Gospels, they are, we are receiving a reliable eyewitness account of what Jesus did and taught Partly because the disciples don't write themselves into the, the Gospels in a good light, right? Typically our human tendency is to make yourself look good. But over and over again you see the disciples not figuring it out or their failure. But they, even as they fail, a gracious Lord, and they testify about Him, reveals Himself especially in what seemed like defeat, turns into his greatest triumph. They failed, but Jesus succeeded. And they record it. They say, we were there. We saw it. John, in his first letter, or first epistle, he says this in his opening words. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked at and our hands have touched. We proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which the Father, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. As these men recall all that they saw and experienced and have fully experienced being complete in Christ, they say, I want you to know about this. Yeah, and we failed miserably along the way. But he was faithful. He was good. So today we've looked at the true son who came and cleansed his father's, out, his, his father's house for worship. But ultimately he's the true son who went to the cross, who rose from the grave in order that we might worship him in spirit and truth. 
And my question to you is, do you have this son? Do you know him? Because the scripture says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. If you don't, he wants to give you that life today. And for the rest of us, what are those things we need to leave outside in our worship? Or what are those things that we need to bring to his cross and say, Jesus, I need you to take these away from me. Remove these distractions. We're heading into a time of remembrance now. A celebrating again what Jesus did. Literally, viscerally, going to the cross, buying our salvation.